a Podcast One production. Questions. Welcome to the Big Questions with me, Adam Spencer. If you've listened to any of these podcasts, you know that I'm a, I'm a pretty tech guy. I'm very cyber savvy. I'm almost. I'm, you could call me an influencer. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm like anyone. I understand that it's probably important to know a bit about cybersecurity, and I know nothing. I'll occasionally hear that it's important to do something. I'll click in my memory. Okay, we'll do something about. It. I do nothing. And I had an incident recently that made me. Uh, bit of a wake-up call on that front. So I thought I'd have a chat with a friend of mine who is the bomb when it comes to cybersecurity. Amongst other things, he established the worldwide website phenomenon, Have I Been Pwned? Troy Hunt is our guest on The Big Questions today. How are you, Troy? Yeah, good, mate, good. Just quickly, on the name of the website, haveibeenpwned.com, pwned, P-W-N-E-D, I've, I've got teenage kids, so I think I sort of understand the meaning of that word. Why did you go for that? website name. Yeah, so I mean the teenage kids is a bit of, bit of a giveaway. So pwned is is a, a colloquialism for owned. So the P and the O key right next to each other on the keyboard. The Apparently the genesis of it is someone's like playing a game and they've just shot someone and they're like, hey, you've been owned, RP, pwned. And that term is just sort of stuck. So it's Owned, I've dominated you, I've killed you, I've, yeah, blah. Correct. Misspelt so, with P means an online version of having been beaten. Look, I mean, you might say uh, I've just uh, thrown an egg at someone and hit them. Ha, I've pwned you, you know. Uh, and, and then in the context of the data reach thing, it's like, well, someone's just stolen my data. They now have my information. I've been pwned. This all started. I got a uh, – so I've got passwords, right? I've got passwords. <laughs> and I know – I've read that, like, the most common password, if people have to have a six-digit password, is often one, two, three, four, five, six. Mm. That's mm. not good, is it? No, no. And, it's, look, it's, it's people trying to – weasel their way around barriers to entry. You know, it's like something's in my way. I'm a human. I just want to come here and do a job. What's the easiest way to do it? One, two, three, four, five, six. If if they insist on letters, one of the most popular passwords is the word password. <laughs> Again, reasonably easy to guess. Or you get really smart and you replace the O with a zero because the hackers haven't worked that out. Oh, there you go. So it's a mixture <laughs> of letters and numbers. Well, this is the thing because people will try and use password and then they'll go to a website and the website says, no, 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 a safe password has got to have letters and numbers as well. So people go, oh, no problems. I'll just substitute a character for something else. Yep. But, you know, like hackers know this. Or password one. There you yep, go. we know this password. too. And then if, if you need a non-alphanumeric character, you put an exclamation mark at the end. Everyone does this. Yes, okay. But then we get to this world where I had, and because of the work I've done with you, at uh, the moment, I know that as of this morning, I had on one device 184 different websites with passwords. And how do you remember all that? So I'd got to the point where I had a bit of a, I'd have a, 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 I had a, a number, and, and so I'd, I'd use a word that reminded me of that website, then with this number somewhere mixed in. And I thought that was a degree of complete, it all came back to haunt me a while ago, Troy, when I got an email. And the email uh, from a dodgy looking name and the subject line was, your password is, boom. And it had printed out there a password that I quite regularly use. And that scared me a little bit. I clicked on the email and the email went, yeah, dear, mention me by name. Uh, we know that your password you regularly use is, Hunk, and it quoted the password. And I genuinely thought a bit, oh, this is a bit weird. It then went on 
to suggest they'd observed me doing certain things that might be embarrassing <laughs> if other people ever caught image of me doing because they'd used the camera on my webcam while I was in the shower or whatever, blah, 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 blah. And I started really panicking. How, how is it, who is this person? How do I know my password and the like? I rang someone who knew something about this. They directed me to a website of yours called Have I Been Pwned, P-W-N-E-D. Tell us about Have I Been Pwned. So Have I Been Pwned is a data breach aggregation service. Okay, stop you there. A data breach aggregation service. That's right. So what's, what's a data breach? So I'll start with the data breach. So a data breach is when a website like, uh, let's say LinkedIn is a good example. LinkedIn gets hacked. Someone steals a whole bunch of data out there, usually things like email addresses and passwords. Because there's millions of people who are members of LinkedIn. That's to right. To join LinkedIn, I give them my email and I give them... A password, one, two, three, four, five, six. Exactly. So they had more than 150 million email address and password pairs breached out of their service years ago. Now, so hackers have gone in to the LinkedIn architecture at the bit where they save all these passwords and match them up with uh, the email addresses. They've managed to suck that list out. Yeah. So they've found a security vulnerability somewhere. So you know, someone's written some dodgy code or hasn't had a good password on LinkedIn, whatever it may be. Hackers have taken the email addresses and passwords out of LinkedIn, originally started selling them on the dark web. So you could go on the dark web, you could pay some Bitcoin and you get 150 million plus sets of credentials. And then other hackers then use them to break into people's other accounts because people reuse passwords. Ah, right. So if when I've joined LinkedIn, I've used my little very safe six-digit password, one, two, three, four, five, six, whatever. And if I use that on other websites matched up with the same email, people might be able to use that to just roll on through. That's it. So you, you end up with this account takeover conundrum where people are having unrelated internet accounts taken over because they're in, say, the LinkedIn data breach and they use the same credentials there. So it, it almost becomes like a bit of a skeleton key to your online life. Though you use my LinkedIn password email connection to get into my Amazon account so, or my Airbnb account because I was lazy and used the same password. That's it. So it's almost like your whole digital life just gets infected when you're reusing credentials. Okay, so that's what a data breach is when, when a group of baddies go in and get some passwords out of a, a website. You said that Pwned is a data breach aggregation service. What do you mean? That's right. So there's a lot of data breaches. So in Have I Been Pwned at the moment, there's, as of today, there's 408 separate data breaches. So everything from LinkedIn to Dropbox, many people would have heard of Ashley Madison back in, when was that, 2015, 2016? Ashley Madison was the website you went to if you wanted to have a, a secret liaison. That's the one. That's like the a, one. It was like their, their motto was life is short, have an affair. So, yeah, like all moral judgment and everything aside, the reality of it is there were 30, I think it was about 35 million people who had their data exposed there. 30, so, so 35 million yeah, apparently affairs are big business. Combina <laughs> so, <laughs> combinations of password and email address. Well, it was much worse with Ashley Madison too because it wasn't just passwords and email addresses. It was deeply personal information, the likes that you would provide in order to find a partner willing to engage in the affair with you. Whoa, okay. So so data breaches might just get your email and password. They could get credit card details in certain circumstances. They could get, if you've said, I like a bit of this and a bit of that, that's wow, it. okay. So that's, okay, data breach. So you've got 408 data breaches all aggregated onto Have I Been Pwned. Yeah, correct. So what that means is when you go to Have I Been Pwned, you'll see there's a, a big text box on the front page. You plug your email address in. The website comes back and says, here's all the places that your email address has been exposed. 
Ah, so, okay. So chances are my email with a, okay, so LinkedIn or something, there, there have been hacks out there where people have got my email and password. If you're coming back with a hit, then yes. If you're not coming back with a hit, it just means I don't know. <laughs> like you could still be out there because one of the things to remember with data breaches is there's like 408 data breaches in Have I Been Pwned today. There are thousands and thousands of more incidents out there which haven't come my way or I'm yet to process or it's just an absolute flood of data at the moment. So why did you start? Let's go this, before, before we go through my personal experience with your website, why, why did you start it? Well, I, I felt that a lot of people weren't aware of how extensive their exposure was. Mm-hmm. So data breaches had happened, people wouldn't know about it. And at the time, you know, this was, uh, when were we, like, late 2013. Uh, there were things like the Adobe data breach. Adobe makes things like Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in there twice, <laughs> my personal address and my work address. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Like, if I, if I didn't have this data and didn't have this service, I might not have known about that. I think other people would be interested in this too. And then what's happened over the last almost six years now is we've just seen this constant flood of data breaches to the point where... I started this service in December 2013 with about 155 million breached records. As of today, there's 8.5 billion records in the system. So, okay, so when you when you look at each breach and go, how many bits of information did they get? How many how many identities did they? It's identities. Yeah. yeah. Did they access? Correct. Eight billion plus. Eight and a half. Now, the the thing is here, this is instances of someone being in a data breach. So, of that 8.5 billion. 18 records are mine personally. So I have been in 18 different data breaches mm. that I know of. And, you know, very curiously, sometimes the first I know of me being in a data breach is when I get an email from Have I Been Pwned. So I load the data in and it's like, hey, Troy, you've been in, I had one the other day, it was the house, house with a Z on the end data breach. And I was like, what, what is this? <laughs> I have no idea what this is, but it's just one of these things that I signed up to because I wanted to look at house designs or something like that 18 odd months ago. And it's, it's a really good example, actually, of how many little traces you leave around the web that you completely forget about later on, but it's out there and there was a password out there and if I'd use that somewhere else, I've got a bigger problem. That's the thing, because for most individuals, the, the, the friction with passwords is going back to a website you'd visited three years ago and it says, well, what's your password? And you go, how am I meant to remember? That's the, the normal stress you have as an individual interacting with the password world is, oh, how am I meant to remember that password? But you don't tend to think of it as gee, how many passwords have I just left floating around out there for bad guys to come and access? Well, the reality for most people, the answer to how am I meant to remember it is, well, it's the same as the one you use everywhere, so it's easy to remember. And that's the big problem we've got. It's it's the password reuse. So you're a little bit smarter because, all right, you had a pattern, an observable pattern, but it was distinct on each service. Now, imagine most people are like, look, I'm just going to pick the dog's name and the year the kid was born and that's going to be my password and I'll use that everywhere. So that's how they remember the password. If that, and if that, so yes, yeah, so that could be exactly the same password on 20 or 50 on. or 200 sites yeah, around the yeah. world. So as, as the growth, just those numbers and what have I been pwned has come to represent in the sort of cyber security community, you must be amazed at how, because it started as a little sort of, I, I get the impression it was the right thing to do in a bit of a novelty project. Did yeah. you have any idea it would become the the online institution that it is today? Oh, mate, I had no idea. <laughs> it's, it, look, the thing has gone gone absolutely crazy. I mean, it's it's everything from starting as a little project to uh, I ended up in, in Congress in the US a couple of years ago based on the work on there because they had questions about data breaches. 
and it's just taken me just the, the most unexpected, bizarre places. What, what was it like speaking? What were you speaking to Congress about? So Congress uh, were doing an, an inquiry around the impact of data breaches on knowledge-based authentication. So you know how if, if you call, let's say you call up Telstra and you go, hey, I'm Adam, you know, I want to make some changes to my account, and they're going to go, all right, just so that we know you really are, Adam, what's your date of birth? Yeah. And you're going, ah, oh, crap. It's, it's the thing that's in all the data breaches and is all over the web. So Congress was sort of interested in, in when we have this situation where we have so much data that's so extensively leaked, what is the impact of that on actually being able to do knowledge-based authentication? Because something like a date of birth is what's referred to as static KBA. So it's, it's static, you cannot change it. If you're using that as an identity proof and other people know it, either because of a data breach or you just like having birthday parties, yeah. you know, now you've got a problem. So how reliably can we do identity verification? I, yeah, I, so I can change an online password. I can change the three questions you ask about mother's maiden name, change that to where I went to school or whatever. I can't change my date of birth. No, you can't if change. If you know that about me and someone's using that as an authentication, yep. then that's, that's fixed. Correct. So as an identity verification attribute, it's terrible. That The problem is, is that the thing that it that works really, really well, and the reason why it's still used is that everyone knows how to use it. Like we have got much, much better identity verification technologies out there, but they require buying a token or learning a new process or some other form of friction. Mm. But everyone is able to answer the question, what's your date of birth? And whereas we'd all be safer if there was a token, We'd all be complaining on the phone to Telstra. No, I don't, I don't, why should I have to get a token? I can't find my token. Just ask me my date of birth. That's the the, the two yeah. way street. There, there's the friction, and we're often trading off security and usability, mm. right? So we're saying, hey, look, we can make something more secure. Something like two factor authentication, for example. Now that is when, if you're trying to log onto a website, it says, well, we've just sent you a six digit number to your phone. Can you please type that in? to show that you're holding the phone so we're more confident you're the person who should be accessing this website. Yeah, exactly. So when you do that as well as a password, someone just having your password is no longer enough. Now, the, the problem is, of course, for people who want to log on to services, they're like, oh, man, I've got to enter my password. Now I've got to go and enter the, the thing from the token and the SMS and maybe I've got to wait a while before it comes and look, I'm busy, I've got stuff to do. <laughs> you know, and they just don't bother. So this is, this is the problem. Like, so much of security does create friction as well. We'll get back to my little breach in a moment. Just a little side question. When you were dealing with Congress, so a lot of people saw the Mark Zuckerberg testimony to Congress about Facebook, and the edited version we saw was a little bit embarrassing, some of the questions the congressmen were asking. You know, you don't charge for your website. How do you possibly make money? Oh, well, we, we run ads. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Now, I, I've heard that sort of top line questioning was a little bit, uh, but the testimony actually went on for quite a while afterwards. And there was, I got the impression, I've been told there were some quite informed people asking sharp questions. When people were asking you stuff, were you impressed with their level of briefing and knowledge or was there part of the cyber nerd in you going, oh, for the love of, I can't believe you're asking me that question? Well, one of the things I learned very early on is that when you when you sit there facing congressmen and congresswomen and they ask you questions, the questions are prepared by staffers so that the staffers behind them are super, super intelligent. So I spent a bunch of time with the staffers after the testimony as well, and I was blown away by how smart these people were. Mm. So that the challenge, of, of course, is that you, you get these questions and they're usually pretty high level, but you've got to try and give a response which is consumable by people who on this day might be talking about the cyber stuff and on the next day they're talking about the opioid epidemic or something mm. like that. So they're across everything. So how do I give them a response that they can consume 
but then the people behind them can actually action. So you've got to have substance as well as something that mere mortals can understand. So when it came to the conversation with, with Congress, what, what, are you, what are you most happy that you managed to get across? What was your key take-home message that both worked for the really informed back people but also was digestible for someone who's not an expert? So, you know, the one that comes immediately to mind, and, and this wasn't even mine, this came from someone else. So before I went and testified, I, I wrote a blog post and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to Congress. Anyone got any good ideas about what I should say? <laughs> oh, I'm sure you would have got some fruity replies on that one. I got some rippers for that. But, but one was actually super insightful, and it, it was sort of talking about the fact that organisations like to get so much of our data because it's so valuable. And, and what the comment said was, organizations tend to look at our personal data as an asset and they never look at it as a liability. And what we're trying to get across here is it would be great if organizations had less data on us, if they only had what they needed in order to perform whatever action it is that the website's there for, and then they only had it for as long as possible. It's called data minimization. Like, let's not have more stuff than what we need. And this goes back to the point earlier on about you cannot lose what you do not have. So I thought that was a really sort of insightful thing that someone else told me and I relayed it in Congress. So in my case, I panicked, went to Have I Been Pwned and it said I'd been part of multiple data breaches, some of them quite large, going back a while, uh, this and that. I checked a couple of other things and I got the impression this email I'd been sent was not a case of someone uh, actually accessing my password and linking to it. It was just one of these big phishing exercises. If, I, if, I'd had, if I'd been calm enough to look in my junk folder and notice that there were about 50 other emails yeah. over the last few days remarkably similar to the one that had landed in my inbox and only one of those had got through, I probably would have thought, okay, there's clearly just some big silly activity going on here and I've been caught in it. And it was the fact that only one got through in my inbox and I just I got totally in hindsight, panicked and yeah, yeah. could have been a lot calmer about it. So what, what had happened there? there? There had been some breach. They'd found my password along with millions of others and they've just thrown it out to everyone hoping someone will nibble back? Yeah, I think the first thing to understand with this is it's not personal. It wasn't yeah. like, hey, we're, we're out here to get at them, you know? Yeah, which, so, and, and, and the, but the reason it works in some small amount of cases is it feels so intensely personal. So th this is the clever social engineering aspect of it. So they're reflecting something that you know that in your mind is a secret. And you're reading this email and you're like, crikey, like that, that is actually my password. Yes. This is something that is genuinely mine. They know something about me and that immediately gives them more credibility. So again, for like this social engineering aspect, like that is extremely effective. Uh, and, and the way they're doing it, of course, is they're just going, all right, well, let's go and grab big data breaches, the same sort of stuff I grab and put in Have I Been Pwned for good purposes. Mm. They're going and grabbing these and they're going, okay, sweet, I've got 100 million records here. I'm going to send 100 million emails I've only got to get a really, really, really small hit rate on that. I'm going to make some cash. So so that email I got was part of a set of 20 million or 50 oh, million yeah, or something yeah. emails being sent. You're, you're just a number. <laughs> like, that's that's all it is. Just quickly, how do you send out 100 million emails? At, yeah, so, so this is the next, the next challenge, right? Because you can't just, like, create a Gmail account and start firing them all out. So you, you, you'd wear your fingers down to the knuckles <laughs> just typing in the... So what we've got to remember is that all of this is really highly automatable. And attackers will do things like uh, that they might use a, a botnet, which is a, just a collection of infected PCs that have malware and they take instructions from a command and control server. Okay, so let's just let's go through that a little bit more slowly. A botnet is a network of bots. You said infected 
PCs. Effective PCs. So, so PCs in individuals' houses or workspaces. Correct. Yeah. So you've got people all the way around the world who've received an email with an attachment and it says, hey, just run this executable in order to access your tax return, for example. And that then installs malicious software on the computer and it sits there listening for commands. And then the attacker runs what's called a command and control server, which is a server which actually sends out the commands to what can be, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of different infected machines. Okay, so I'm the bad guy. I send out that first fluffy cat picture email or whatever. A million people around the world of the hundreds of millions I blanket email to are silly enough to click on it. Their PCs then become, what, silent soldiers waiting for me to then tell them, hey, can you be part of this big spam mail ad I'm doing yeah, on, it, on, on the LinkedIn data breach or whatever? Exactly. So they're now slaves in the botnet. And the attacker can then say, let, let's say in the case of, of, the, of the extortion email you got, they might go, okay, right, I've got 100 million emails to send out. I'm going to start distributing these between these slaves on the botnet. I've got a million, I've got a million PCs around the world that are part of my botnet. Yeah. I'm just going to dish out emails and they'll all just quietly email them off in the background. That's it. So, so the challenge wow. then, defending against something like that, imagine, imagine you're, you're Google, right, and you're Gmail, and you're like, hey, there's this new sort of spam campaign going on. They're coming from real people's real machines all over the world, different operating systems, different mail clients, and they're all sending this mail, which, which for all intents and purposes, without reading the contents of the mail, looks legitimate. How do we stop this? Like This is a hard challenge. And, and, and the way we can stop it is a lot of stuff can get identified as spam. But as you just said, sometimes stuff slips through, it goes in your inbox and you open up and you're like, crikey, there's my password. So, yeah, so, okay, yeah. So if you're trying to stop that, it's not practical to go to the one and a half million individual PCs around the world that are part of the network and shut them down one at a time, do you have to try and go further back up the, the source tree? Well, there's different approaches to it. So every now and then we see things like a command and control server getting taken offline. Once it's identified and it's killed, attackers get smart. They have backups. They have multiple ways of rolling to other machines. We also see the vulnerabilities that have been exploited in individual machines patched at some point in time. So, you know, you might see, for example, Microsoft will push out updates and it will, it will make sure that the hole that enabled software to be installed maliciously is, is killed. Oh, so, uh, it, so if my PC was part of a botnet that was doing these email campaigns and Microsoft becomes familiar with that one, the next patch that you're asked, can you all please update with this, shuts down that and my, my computer's no longer part of that botnet? Can do. So it really depends on, on what it is. And, and, and if it's not an update to the operating system to patch the security vulnerability, it might be an update to your antivirus. So whether you're running, you know, McAfee or whether you're running Windows Defender, which is a native part of Windows, uh, you know, we get uh, updates pushed out there which identify malicious software and clean those as well. Now, sometimes it's also irrecoverable. <laughs> there are certainly times where a machine is just nuked so badly that, look, yeah, I want to reset, ask it. go back to scratch. I want to ask you about that in a second. So just quickly on the topic of patches, I, I do have one thing in my mind I've been told when people talk about, you know, the best things you can do to keep yourself secure, patches just automatically, just the moment you just always patch and always update as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, and look, these days it's generally pretty easy. I mean, a good example, I've got an iPhone. Uh, every time Apple pushes out an update, you just get a little thing pop up on your screen. It goes, hey, there's an update. Would you like to take it? And it's like, yep, fine, and saw it tonight while I'm having a sleep. Get up the next morning, you're all good. Uh, Windows updates very frequently as well. Again, it happens in the background. Every now and then you see it says, hey, look, we're going to need to restart your computer tonight. And you go, okay, fine. 
do that. You want to take those because that's patching very often serious security vulnerabilities. And it's, it's not that, you know, Windows is full of holes or iOS is full of holes. It's just the nature of software and the nature of attackers. They find creative ways to find vulnerabilities and exploit them. So you want to keep that stuff up to date. It's, it's often referred to as an ongoing firefight or an ongoing arms race between the good guys and the bad guys and the good guys and the bad guys. It is, it is. It is it's always one-upmanship. When it comes to uh, someone's PC, so someone might be using at work or at home for months a PC that's part of a botnet doing these big spam campaigns, they've never known. Otherwise, their PC is just working completely normally. You can get nastier ones, can't you, where you go to open your computer one morning you, or you've, you've clicked on an email you shouldn't have and suddenly it's more than just your PC is going to be part of a little stealth email campaign over the next six months. What happens in these situations where something comes up going, ha-ha, you're now locked out of your own computer, send us some cash or Bitcoin or we're going to fry your computer? What's happening there? So this is ransomware, and, and ransomware became really popular a couple of years ago. The, uh, the ransomware's actually been around since, I think the first ransomware was about 1989. It was called the AIDS Trojan. You used to actually get it on a floppy disk. Like, imagine getting a floppy disk in the mail, putting it into your PC, and then it's like, ha-ha, you're locked out of your machine. And I, I think from memory back then, in order to get back in, you had to send, like, a check to Panama or something, and then they'd send you a key back. <laughs> So, Isn't uh, that beautifully quaint? Old school ransomware. Now, modern day ransomware is you've got a vulnerability somewhere, you've run something that you shouldn't have, and it just goes through, encrypts all your important files, and then pops up and says, hey, all your files are encrypted. You've got to send us some Bitcoin. Now, they do make it very easy. They're like, maybe Bitcoin is new to you. Here's how to get a Bitcoin wallet. Go here, pay some money. You know, it's <laughs> very easy. Some of them even have like chatbots and services in order for you to ask questions about how to get the Bitcoin so that you can pay the what, attackers. So, g- g'day, Sarah. I'm the person who's just locked you out of your hint and here's exactly. the way you're going to pay me so I let you back in. Can I be of assistance to you? And, and so they'll say, send me $500. Yeah. Or we're going to lock Correct. you. And so I'll ask you in a second, should you pay? But, but if, if in, in the worst case scenarios, if you don't, that person just leaves your computer, everything locked, you just can't use it anymore. That's it. And, and you know, the really important thing here is for most people, if you think about it carefully, you probably care less about the computer. You can always reinstall Windows, for example. You care more about the files. So imagine they're like your family photos going back 20 years or something, and someone's encrypted all the files. You don't have backups, so this is a really key thing, because if you've got backups, you just go, okay, well, I'm not going to pay you. I'll just go and roll back to my backups, and I'll be fine. But imagine you don't have backups, which a lot of people don't. This is a good question to ask yourself. You don't have the backups, and you're being faced with this situation where it's like, I can pay $500, and maybe I'll get everything back, or not pay, and I get nothing back. What am I going to do? Is there a risk that if I pay $500, they'll realise... Ah, oh, this is someone who's willing to pay. We'll ask for more money. Is, is there much data on what happens when people do or don't pay in these situations? So one, one of the sort of really concerning things about this is that very often you do get your stuff back. And the reason it's concerning is that it does run as a viable business for attackers because they establish a reputation of, look, if you pay, you'll get your stuff back. Now, we've seen many instances even where the likes of hospitals and police departments have paid ransoms and gotten data back. And, and that's sort of concerning because it, it, it legitimises the business. Whereas if too many of the baddies said, ha joking, I actually meant 5000 and everyone goes, okay, I'm not going to pay anymore, that kills the business model in the long term. You're better off taking 500 for every person who's willing to pay yeah. than trying to extort 10 times as much out of them because down the line there'll be 
tens of thousands of other $500 payments coming back to you. That's the thing. And, and of course, there's no recourse either. It's not like, hey, I paid my $500 in Bitcoin. I didn't get my files back. I'm going to go to the ACCC and make a report. It's like, yeah. good luck with that, mate. That's you, not going to go far. Can you claim it on your tax? So you said this was big a couple of years ago. Is the ransomware bubble burst? Is it still happening? Is it? Oh, it's definitely still there. We just saw a massive spate of it sort of late 2017 into where 2018. Was it, where were the bad guys coming from? Do we know? Look, a lot of it. So, so the, the, the big, bigger question here is how reliably can we do attribution? So how confident can we be about pointing the finger and saying it was this person here? A lot of it definitely comes from Eastern Europe. You've got people that are a combination of, of very, very tech savvy uh, in a part of the world where legal recourse from somewhere like Australia is much harder. Uh, look, if it was someone in New Zealand, you'd just go, okay, well, we've got good treaties with NZ. You know, their mates will get them to deport the bloke and we'll charge him. A lot harder when someone's in the Ukraine or somewhere like that. You said if, you, if your photos aren't backed up, just on that point, all my stuff is saved to the cloud. So isn't that, does that mean it's backed up? Well, it means you've got a copy on the cloud. Now, the, the next question to ask yourself is that if someone was to encrypt all of the files on your machine, would those encrypted copies overwrite the one on the cloud? So this is where we get to things like versioned backups. So do you have the ability to roll back to a file at a point in time or do you really just have loads of copies of the same thing and they could be copies of the same corrupted thing? I think I understand what you said then. Is that your way of saying I just don't know? Well, it depends on, on the service you're using too. So, I mean, let's imagine it's uh, you take all your photos on your iPhone and they all back up to iCloud and everything basically just sits in this little Apple ecosystem. I'm not too worried about my iPhone getting ransomware. iOS has been super, super solid for this sort of stuff. So I'm okay with that. But if I have all the documents on my PC, and we've certainly seen many cases of PCs getting ransomware, and then my documents, say, sit in my Dropbox, which means that they're on the cloud as well, but everything syncs, right? So if everything suddenly gets encrypted on my PC and it syncs up to the cloud and now the Dropbox ones are encrypted as well, ah. now I've got a problem. Now, fortunately, with something like Dropbox, you can roll back, I think, up to about a month ago worth of data. So I might just be able to recover there. I can replace the current encrypted version of a document with the previous before it got encrypted version. Correct, correct. So you want to be able to roll back to a point in time. And there are dedicated backup products out there that can do stuff like backing up to the cloud and restore at point in time as well. So I, uh, I do a bit of work with people in uh, cybersecurity. I'll host the occasional conference and things like that. And what I love about the cybersecurity community that you're a very prominent member of is People in cybersecurity sit on a spectrum of uh, how hardcore they are about stuff, how paranoid they are about stuff. I know, I know some cybersecurity people who say if you ever, for one minute, use free Wi-Fi in a hotel, you may as well just ring Vladimir Putin, give him your credit card details and send him all your cash. There are others who go, eh, hotel Wi-Fi, hint, you know, where do you sit on the spectrum of, and I don't mean paranoia in a pejorative sense, or, you know, genuine security above everything versus cut it a bit of slack versus quite laissez-faire? Where would you put yourself? Look, I, I think with any of these sorts of discussions, the extreme ends of the scale are usually not where you want to be. Somewhere in the middle is normally the more rational position. Look, if we take something like hotel Wi-Fi, 
I look at it very pragmatically and say, look, there's, there's a security need and there's also a usability need. So, you know, I, I travel a lot. I need to be able to send emails. This is part of my job. So Wi-Fi is important to me. The, the pragmatic part of it is that such a huge portion of our internet traffic today is encrypted. Uh, it's encrypted on your phone, on your PC, on your Mac, before it even goes out over the Wi-Fi connection, which means it can't be observed, so you have confidentiality. It can't be modified, so you have integrity. You can't change where that traffic goes to, so you have authenticity, so you know exactly where it's going to land up. So, for example, if I was doing, let's say I was doing either my Twitter or my email or my banking, I'd be really confident using a network like in a hotel. It's extremely hard with modern day web services to actually get in the middle of that traffic and modify it. So let's go back a step there. When you say that stuff is encrypted, well, so, so what, what, what does encrypted mean? If I, if, if just say you want to buy my latest book off my website, adamspencer.com.au, a copy of my book, Numberland. So you go to buy my book. You've typed in your credit card details to your PC to buy something off my website. What does encryption mean in in the, the course of that transaction? Is, 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 is this a good example for, to explain what encryption means? Yeah, that's, that's a perfect example. And, and for, for most people, and, I, and I, I really hope this holds true and you do have encryption on your website, otherwise it's going to sound funny. Mm. But uh, someone goes to the website, uh, in, their, in their browser they're going to see a padlock. So the padlock up there in the address bar next to the URL tells you that the connection between your browser and your server is encrypted. Now, what does encryption mean? It means that anyone who is in between the browser and the server, so for example, the hotel Wi-Fi, your ISP, the government backbones where the internet traffic goes over, all they see in terms of that traffic is a bunch of indecipherable gobbledygook. So they can't read anything that's going backwards and forwards. So when you enter the credit card details, they can't change. So when, so when you type in your credit card, one, two, three, four, five, six, mm. you've typed it in as a series of numbers that make sense. Yep. Where does it become the gobbledygook? In your browser. So when you type in one, two, three, four, five, six in your browser and then you hit the submit button. So the submit button is the browser is going to send a request over the internet. Now the browser encrypts it let's say, on your PC before it sends that. So anyone who's able to look at that traffic, so for example, the hotel Wi-Fi can see traffic. They can see that your PC is sending a volume of traffic to a server somewhere. They just can't see the contents of it. So they can't see the one, two, three, four, five, six, and also they can't modify anything. So you, you have what we'd call integrity. So they can't, for example, modify the contents of your web page to put malicious software in it. So you type in one two three four five six. When it starts going down the pipe to get to my website, it's AZ0058 yep. blah blah blah. It gets to my website, it gets turned back into one two three four five Correct. six. It gets decrypted. Where does that happen? So that, so normally that happens at the web server. Yep. Sometimes it happens with a device that sits in front of the web server. So a lot of big websites have things like load balances. So, you know, maybe it happens there. The point is that it happens at a point which is then outside of, of where our, our threat actors, as the term usually is, our threat actors sit. So, you know, threat actors is like, who are you worried about breaking into your things? Uh, you know, the example you just gave is the hotel. So I'm worried about the hotel because they control the Wi-Fi. Now, the, the most important thing here is that they're in the middle of the connection somewhere. So if I hack into the hotel... The encryption's already happened before it hits hotel. Yep. It goes through hotel encrypted, 
you'd only see it encrypted, you can't undo it. That's correct. So the most that the hotel could do is effectively block the traffic. And you do see this happen. There'll be some websites that certain parts of the world you can't access or in certain hotels, for example, you can't access. Mm. Uh, so they can actually block it, but they can't read it and they can't modify it. So if I'm getting, if I'm, I, I won't be getting too technical for you, but if, if what I'm saying makes no sense, feel free to stop me. So there was, there was some encryption process when you typed in your number and there was the same process that un, you know, decrypted it. it, it in all the th- millions of devices people are using, at any given moment, there's all these moments of encryption going on. Is that just one big encryption system centrally controlled somewhere or is encryption in... Bi- how, how, how did my website know how to decrypt what had been sent? So encryption in this fashion relies on on keys. So there's a public key, which is what's used to encrypt the content to send to your website. And then there's a private key, which sits on your website and it can decrypt the traffic that comes to you. So whoever set up your website would have gone through the process of of getting what we'd call a TLS certificate. So a a certificate is issued by a certificate authority. And tell me if we start going too (laughs) deep here. But we've got a whole bunch of certificate authorities around the world that can issue certificates that you then put on your website. These days, they're largely free. There's a, a very prominent organization called Let's Encrypt. You go to Let's Encrypt, you get a free certificate for your website. Private key on your server, when someone makes a connection, there's a process of negotiation where the server says, hey, here's a public key. You're going to use this to encrypt your one, two, three, four, five, six credit card. You're going to send it to me as the server. On the server side, I'm going to use my private key to then decrypt it and read the contents of it. So it's that mathematics of the interaction between public key and private key that allows your one, two, three, four, five, six to get turned into ABC dot, dot, dot and turned back into one, two, three, four, five, six. Correct. And, and you know, this is the cool thing about it because it, it is just mathematics. And, and one of the f- you know, funny things about this is that every now and then you see government saying, oh, we only want to ban encryption. It's like, it's mathematics. How are you going to ban mathematics? <laughs> you, you're in the sensible middle of how much security people need. And because you, you do hear some of the more security conscious members of your community say, well, I've got this phone, triple blah, blah, encrypted through that that runs through a server on Jupiter and blah, blah. So what, give me three things realistically that an individual can do to make themselves considerably safer. We'll finish with what you and I spent this morning doing on my devices. That was in going for a big master password. In my workplace, right, what in terms of my behaviour in the workplace, what can I do to massively reduce the risk that I'm going to be someone who cocks up big time? So if, if, if we finish with the one we did for you today, that's the most important one. So we'll, we'll say that to last. So going in reverse order, you know, one of the things to think about is how much content you actually want to digitise. Now, this is a really sort of, I think it's a super pragmatic thing. And it's the principle of you cannot lose what you do not have. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I use Facebook. I like seeing my friends and I like seeing what they're up to. I'm not part of this kind of, you know, delete Facebook movement. I choose very carefully what I put on Facebook. Uh, I have photos of my kids, for example, that I choose not to put on Facebook, not because I don't want to share them with my friends, but because if my Facebook account gets hacked or if Facebook themselves get hacked, I can't lose it. If I don't put it up there, I can't lose it. So I think number one is just being really pragmatic about deciding what you want to digitize. If you're signing up for a service and they're saying, hey, would you like to leave your date of birth here, per the discussion we had just before about static knowledge-based authentication, 
Unless you really have to, I'd go, no, actually, I don't want to give you my date of birth okay. because if you lose that, I've got a problem. Now, the, the other thing, we also touched on this before as well, is, is two-factor authentication. So two-factor authentication is the thing that saves you when someone gets access to your account. Now, how do they get access to your account? In fact, let's, let's actually make that a bit clearer. So if someone gets access to the password that you're using on an account, now they might get that because you've reused it, and we'll come back to the number one thing in a moment. They might also get it because your machine has been compromised. It's running malicious software and it's key logging the data that you enter. So by having two-factor authentication, regardless of how someone gets your password, they can't do anything with it unless, for example, they also get control of your phone number and that's where the SMS is sent to. Or they get control of the Authenticator app. A lot of people run Google Authenticator or Authy or things like this, generate a little pin. So two-factor as well. Should we do the big one? We'll get to that in a second. In terms of when I get emails and I open an email I shouldn't have and I'm now part of the botnet, what are the telltale signs of the sort of emails or attachments you should not interact with? What should you look at and go, no, you're kidding me? So definitely attachments is a big concern. So attachments which will be things like... Here's that like, spreadsheet you asked for, that sort so of email. So spreadsheets are one. And one of the problems with spreadsheets, let, let's say you get like a Microsoft Excel document, they can have macros in them. And macros What's are a macro? code. So it, it's a code and a procedural set of steps that can run within the spreadsheet. And, and the problem is, is that macros have a lot of power. Now, they're disabled by default, and you'll get these emails which says, hey, we've attached the spreadsheet for you. Uh, by the way, you'll get prompted to enable the macro. You need to enable that to see your tax return data or something like that. So there's a little bit of social engineering that goes on with it as well. But should I even, if it, what, what should make me twig, why would I be opening this? Yeah, so the, the first thing is that just by virtue of having an attachment like that, particularly from an unknown sender, is going to be a really big one. Uh, the other sort of files that you often see attached are things like web pages, like .html files. Like there's no reason anyone should be sending a normal person a .html file. So that's a concern as well. You'll see in the language as well, there's often telltales. Uh, so uh, one is implying urgency. You know, it's like, hey, you need to open this now because otherwise the cops are going to come and arrest you because you haven't paid your speeding ticket or... Now, of course, the challenge there is you might actually have a speeding ticket. <laughs> so, so you've got to try and sort of cut through this and disseminate a little bit. But generally, trying to create a sense of urgency is, is a big one. Uh, attempts to create a sense of authority is another big one. So, you know, we are the ATO. Your tax return is overdue. And, and one easy way of sort of independently verifying this, if you get an email and you're just not sure about it, and let's say it's from the ATO, Go to the ATO website or go to like MyGov, log into MyGov and have a look at it independently or call the mm. ATO, not by the number in the email either, right? Like literally go to ato.gov.au and go, okay, where's the phone number? Call them up. Do independent verification. If, if And yeah, someone suggests to me if it's, if it's from within your workplace, just quickly ring that person or wave across the cubicle and go, you sent me a document, I'm about to open it. Just, yeah, go and talk to the person. Yeah. Go and talk to the person or pick up the phone and call them or send them a separate email. Don't reply to the email because it could be a different email address that looks very, very similar. So do your own sort of independent approach to the person and ask. Okay. And now the big one. What did we spend an hour doing this morning? I feel so much more cyber skilled than I was <laughs> when I woke up this morning. What did we spend an hour doing across my three devices, my phone, my iPad and my laptop? What did we do? So this, and this is like the number one tip. We got you onto a password manager. So we installed 1Password and, and it, it's a product called 1Password. One, one was the digit Number password. one password, that's right. There's many different password managers out there, 
but this is this is an, an example of one. Correct, correct. So this is the one that I've been using for years and years. And and one of the neat things about it is, first of all, it works on all your devices. So you've got it running on an iPhone, an iPad, and a Mac. I've got it running on my PCs as well. And what a password manager does is gives you a secure way of putting all of your passwords into one like super encrypted vault and then making sure that each one of those passwords is strong and unique. And this is what we started doing this morning. So at the moment, all my passwords, we're halfway through the process, all my passwords are still, you know, bank, one, two, three, four, five, six, or whatever, but Already they've been moved inside, you said, a safe vault. What do you mean by there's a vault that they've been moved inside? So think of it, if, if we take sort of a, an, an in-real-life metaphor, it's a little bit like having a safe. Mm-hmm. And you're going to put all of these valuable things inside the safe and you're going to have a really strong code for the safe itself. Now, we call that a master password. So you created this master password, which which is something that you can remember. And what we're doing now is we're putting all of your other passwords inside the vault and we're changing them from bank one, two, three, four to just randomly generated 20, 30, 40 character strings. Okay, so we've got this big yep. safe. I've got 200 old website passwords that are currently printed out on pieces of paper. And it says Commonwealth Bank password, Commonwealth Bank one, two, three, four, five, six. So currently, safe inside the vault, my websites, hundreds of websites, still have my old passwords. Yes. But now, each time I go to do anything at Commonwealth Bank, I'm going to ask, can I please change my password? And rather than Commonwealth Bank 123456, one password is going to generate some ridiculous 1W.35, boom, boom, incredibly long, complicated thing. That's now going to go on the photocopied piece of paper as my password. Correct. So what we were doing is, is we we're like literally logging into the account with your original terrible password. Sorry, man. It's no, not no. terrible. Fair call. <laughs> You're logging with I, your I terrible password. I thought it was password. great this morning. I realise now it's pretty <laughs> shonky. And then we literally go to the, you know, whatever the change password page is. Of course, every website does it a little bit differently. You go there and it says, hey, enter your old password. So we put the old one in. And then it says, what's your new password? And please confirm it. And we hit the little 1Password icon, which now sits at the top of your browser, and said, generate a new one. And then it came up with gobbledygook and we're like, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) You know, like we're never going to have to type it in ourselves anyway. And it automatically filled that into the new password and confirmed password fields, saved it into your one password into the vault, and then you click update on the website. And these new passwords that I were generating were like, I could pick them so like 24 characters long, I'll have three letters as well as characters, I'll have four symbols in there as well. Once you get to something like that, is, is the idea that that's just now so long, any one of which could be your 26 letters and your 26 uppercase letters and your 10 digits, and there could be symbols in there. So that's 60 possible characters for each of the 24 Positions. spaces. Yeah. So that's 60 times 60 times 60, 24 times is the idea that's just so many trillions of possible things it could be that it's effectively unhackable? So that there's really two key attributes to this. So, so one is that for all reasonable intents and purposes, no one is going to be able to guess what it is and log on to your account. So, so that's number one. Number two is because you're doing this for each and every account and you're generating a unique password for each and every one, even if someone does get your password, say for CBA, 
they can't do anything with that anywhere else. So not only is it going to be completely different to every password and that it's randomly generated, but it won't adhere to any pattern so that the pattern that you were using before, if someone looked... Which I thought was a pretty good pattern, may I say. <laughs> Except then you sort of go, okay, well, if someone looks at that, could they work it out? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they could probably work that out. Yeah. Now, when I set up in 1Password my master super account, I do have to give a little password of my own there, and that needs to be something I can remember. What what are the general tips around this one super master password that I have to make sure I remember? Yeah, so that, that's actually a really important key. This is the one password you need to remember, hence the name of the password manager. So this has got to be something that not only can you remember, but something that you can type relatively easily because you will be entering it a few times. So one of the best ways to do this is to create a passphrase. Now, the passphrase can be just several random words. So look around the room, think about a few things that are totally non-related uh, and type those in. Cherry table water, for That'd example. That'll do it. And, and, you know, like sometimes people go, oh, yeah, but they're all from the dictionary. You know, like that's predictable. But you can do the mathematics better than me. How many words are there in the dictionary? And then the position of the matters, how many different possible combinations are there? The chances of having a problem with that are extremely low. So passphrases are generally more consumer-friendly. And the problem there is cherry table water makes no sense and I might forget it. So sometimes I've heard passphrases might be the first four words of your favourite song. You've got to be a little bit careful there because that does start to get a bit predictable. I mean, if let's say your passphrase was to be or not to be. Mm-hmm. So, all right, hang on a moment. Like, <laughs> this is yep. a bit obvious. Now, in terms of forgetting as well, when we did the 1Password setup, there was a recovery sheet. And this is literally a piece of paper you should print. It had the secret key that gets generated by the system on it, and it has a space for you to write in, like literally in pen, your master password. And, and what you should be doing is like writing that on pen, having this super, super valuable piece of paper, and then putting it in a safe or putting it somewhere as safe as possible in your home. So I don't click that to the fridge. No, don't put that on the fridge. Don't put it on your social media profile. Don't put it in your cloud storage. Put it somewhere safe. The only problem is what if one password has a data breach hack like Ashley Madison did, etc. What does one password do to keep itself particularly safe in that regard? So what one password as a service, so you've got to remember like there's an app, you run the app on your phone, your PC or whatever, and there's also a service which synchronizes things. So it does synchronize it through their cloud service. So what they do to keep those passwords safe is the passwords are always encrypted on your device. So you never send anything to one password that isn't encrypted. So if someone managed to get every single piece of data that sits in their data center, they're just going to have a whole bunch of encrypted stuff. You would need your master password, which is the one that you created that you can remember and type in. You would also need that secret key that got generated. Remember when we originally did the setup and they're like, hey, here's a secret key. You're going to need this. Keep it somewhere safe because if ever you set up a new device, you're going to need to have the key. So it's almost like a, a, a double protection. So someone needs to get not just the master password, which they could get. So yeah, imagine this. Like This is like the, the most basic technique ever. Someone grabs you and says, give me a master password. I'm going to hit you over the head with this bat. So, ah, crap. Okay. Right. Here it is. Hmm. Well, that's no good. You need that and the key, which is something you've printed out and hopefully you'll put in a safe. Okay. You mentioned to me that to make sure their architecture stays safe, one password actually has a sort of an incentive program for people to try and get in. Yeah, so they have a bug bounty. Now, bug bounties... A bug bounty, I love this. Bug bounties are great. So they're becoming way more popular in recent years. They have been around for a while. And the, and the basic premise is is that 
if someone can find a security vulnerability in their product and report it to them responsibly, they get money. Now, 1Password's offering up to $100,000 US dollars if you find a serious vulnerability in their product. So what that means is there's a whole bunch of people trying to find vulnerabilities in the product because there's a lot of financial incentive. This is like the digital version. Remember, I used to know someone who, who claimed to be employed by one of the major uh, fashion retailers as a sort of undercover shoplifter. And she'd go into various stores and try and nick stuff, and if she managed to get stuff out, report back to this clothing line, look, well, this is what I did. I did that and went into the dressing room and blah, 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 blah. And if she ever got caught, she claimed she could ring head office at this place and they'd say, yeah, no, she's, she's one of our girls. She's, she's a good one. It's like a digital version of that. Yeah, it, it is. And, and in uh, information security, we'd call these people penetration testers. And, and penetration testers can be physical penetration testers as well. So there are people that actually try to get physical access to a premise. They, they make copies of badges. They try and tailgate people through security gates, uh, plug in their little malicious devices somewhere into the network, all sanctioned legally by the company just to try and find holes in it. So, you know, we have versions which are just Purely digital, go online, try and break into something, as well as physical too. It's fascinating stuff. So think about what you're willing to put out there because only by putting stuff out there can it come back to haunt you. Be careful about what you open. Think about two-factor authentication, but the big one, go to a master password system and then over time go to that system Pick your main websites that you'd want to, accounts that you'd want to be safe as quickly as possible. So I'll go back this afternoon, I'll make sure, I'll change my bank. I'll change the main social media that I use all the time because that's the sort of stuff I presume I'm most exposed to. I'll eventually get around to that obscure site in America where I buy mathematics textbooks once every couple of years. But over time, as I use all these websites, they all get raised to this much higher security of password put inside the vault and then I'm good to go. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the, the other thing to add on this as well is, is earlier on we sort of discussed that security and usability often go head to head. There's this friction. The joy of a password manager is that once you actually start getting passwords into it, it's actually easier than ever to log into, particularly on a mobile device. So you've got an iPhone with Face ID. You'll be able to go to any one of your mobile apps and say, I want to log into my mobile app. And you go to the login page and there's a little icon down the bottom that says passwords. You click that, your face ID, so it just biometrically scans your face, and then you click on the name of the application and it just automatically fills everything in. So you don't have to type anything. So it's one of these really, really rare cases where security is actually more usable as well. I'm feeling safer already, but I'm also mindful of I now realise how much of a hopelessly exposed schmuck I was only a couple of hours ago. It's been quite a journey. Love to speak with you, Troy Hunt. Give us the website again, have... Haveibeenpwned.com. And pwned is spelt? P-W-N-E-D. Well worth a check. It's really, uh, it, it's sobering to see uh, how many times you've been exposed out there. Lovely to chat today, mate. Thanks for your time. Cheers, mate. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.